Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. And every night, every night, the NBA is filled with just juicier and juicier games. Uh, I am absolutely loving everything that's going on. Close, close contests. Who knows what's going on in the West? 140 to 130. Sometimes, sometimes you turn on another game and it's 4-4 after six minutes. Cody, how are you doing? Man, I, I didn't watch the the second half of the Kings-Bucks game yesterday. For the first half, I was, I was mostly waiting in the spreadsheets. Like, this is like a, the most bathing I've done in a spreadsheet for a while. So it was one of those where I'd peek up once in a while to be like, wow, that's a bonus, dude. is really, really cruising. And I went to bed being like, all right, Kings are the, the eventual champs. But lo and behold, I wake up and uh, the Bucks pulled it out, Ben. Bucks pulled it out. Oh, yeah. That that game was a dogfight. Um, the intensity of some of these games in March, that had that had a fever pitch. I'm not even going to say playoff intensity. They were talking about during the game how it had felt like a playoff game. That felt like a conference finals game. I mean, there was literally a fight at the end of the game because it was physical and intense and the pace was there and just shot making and of course everything going on with that Kings offense and the Bucks defense. I mean, we've recently done a lot of content on the Kings offense and the Bucks defense, both on podcasts and, and YouTube. Um, but the, the thing that we were batting around before recording today is just how crazy the scoring is in the league. And I think you noted this. There's a ton of individual scoring seasons right now that kind of are are um i'm struggling for words at the beginning of a podcast this cannot be a good sign a lot of good scoring seasons now more than before this is something i've i've really struggled this this season last season because i like looking at things from a historical lens right we're always going back we're looking at past seasons we're looking at some of the best players of all time and i try and situate how players fit into it when we look at it through the scoring context we see now, Ben, because if you sort, if you look at every, like the leaders by points per 75 possessions of all time, Ben, every season, I think this goes back, basketball reference goes back to what, like 1978, I think, something Se- like that. 74, 78, something, whenever they get, whenever basketball reference uses their possession counter that they use is when they have those stats back to. Yeah, so if you look at every single one of the players and, and sort them, by the most points per 75 possession, three of the top six seasons ever are happening right now. Right now, Ben. Uh, that's uh, Quentin Grimes. <laughs> and no, who is who is that? Embiid? Emmanuel Joel, Quickly, Jared Vanderbilt. Jo- jo- I got, I, you know, we got to hit the bingo card early because these guys are not going to come up today. Um, Joel Embiid, I figure, must be one of them. Who else? Yep. Is Giannis? Yeah, Giannis is in the second one. Who's the third, Ben? Um, uh, is it Luca? It is Luca. Wow. Ben. We have we have Embiid with the second highest points per seventy five sessions ever. Giannis at fourth and Luka Doncic at sixth. So this is just raw. One thing we've talked about is how to adjust for scoring inflation over the years, and even even those stats are breaking my brain a little bit because the idea behind adjusting for scoring inflation is sort of a basic a basic change that helps you keep track of what's going on. So it's a simple adjustment. It's a linear adjustment. It means that if the league-wide offensive rating was 100, and now years later it's 115, you basically have a 15% change. 
that you account for. You say like, well, scoring was 15% easier back then when the league average offensive rating was 100. But as we've seen these radical changes, and we've talked about this before, Cody, offense in basketball, like it's just an amazing thing. I don't think you can say it enough. The efficiency of a basketball possession as teams go back and forth on the court, taking turns, that's the rules, was basically stuck between 1.05 points and 1.08 points for like 30 or 40 years. And all the tinkering with bringing the three-point line in and getting more three-pointers and changing the rules and freedom of movement and zone defense and illegal defense and no zone defense, it like it only moved these things slightly. And so basketball created a feeling of like, hey, this is a low-scoring game. It's 88 to 82. And then, oh, this is a high-scoring game. It's 120 to 115. Everything has gone off the rails in the last few years, as we've discussed. And now the league-wide average offensive rating is more like 115. And um, it's starting to make it weird to make these linear comparisons because it turns out it might not be that simple, even just from a statistical, we're trying to put everyone on the same playing field perspective. Yeah, and I think the really interesting thing, too, is you go back to, say, like like 2004, 2003, I think you've, you've dubbed, like, the dead ball era. It's not that they were... I mean, they were definitely less efficient by a significant margin, but the pace was also significantly slower. You just don't see teams literally playing at a pace of 85 possessions per game. Like, you would see that back in 2004. You'd see, what, like, a boxing match between the Pacers and the Nets or the Pacers and the Pistons, where they'd be playing at this grinded-out pace, so to speak. Not even so to speak. That's literally what it was. But I think what's really interesting is when you look at the offensive rating, it isn't a linear path, right? There are some years where it, like, bounces around, like, I, I don't know them off the top of my head, but let's say 2004, let's say the offensive rating for league average is like 103. The next season, it might be 105. It goes down to 103, goes to 107, down to 104. And then all of a sudden, I don't even know, what what is it, like 2019? Is that kind of when when we start seeing this huge upward trend? And ever since then, it's just been this it, it exponential, not even linear at this point, but it just shoots up to 2023. And I think that's the point now where we're like, well, what, what do we do with these numbers now? Right. So what this leads to is a ton of discussion and a ton of graphics and a ton of talking points about this is the, the first player to do this since... Wilt Chamberlain. This is the only player since Oscar Robertson to do this. These are all the players in NBA history to average this. My star on this team and Michael Jordan. And and we again, you know, we've talked about like adjusting statistics and trying to make it a more even playing field. But what I think struck your eye, maybe even more than me, because I think you mentioned this the last time we talked about these big scores, is that at a certain point, it becomes like super linear. You're like, wait a second, it feels like it's not impacting everyone the same way, right? So the league is changing by 12%, but is the top of the scoring heap changing by more than 12%? Is something different going on there? So so we took a look. We took a look at the numbers, Cody, as we are known to do on this show. Um, and it turns out that if you look at the, say, top 50 scorers in the league, okay, the average scoring rate of the top 50 scorer, scorers in the league in 1999, basically it's low point. Um, 
I think there was periods where maybe it was a little bit lower, like 1992, you were closer to 22 points per 75, but let's, let's stick with 1999. Okay. 1999, you were a little over 22 points per 75. That was an average top 50 score. That means if the 50th score in the league averages 18 points per 75, which is about what the number was in 1999, and the top scorer averages, I don't know, 29 or whatever, Shaq or uh, whoever led the league in scoring rate that year average, the average of those top 50 guys was about 22 points per 75. And remember, we use that per 75 because players in modern basketball roughly play about 75 possessions in highly competitive games. Um, you can think of it as something closer to points per game. So a 22-point scorer. Today, the average top 50 scorer averages almost 25 points per 75. So that is a 27% change in, in top scorers where the league offensive efficiency has only gone up by 12%. It's gone from 102 to one, almost 115 um, same thing if you look at top 10 scores. If anything, I would say it actually gets even a little uh, stronger. That effect gets larger when you look at top 10 scores because the average top 10 scorer in 1999, I mean, how's this for a throwback? I hope you're sitting down. The average top 10 scorer was 24 and a half points per 75. So if, if you're a 24, 25, 26-point scorer in 1999, you're one of the best scorers on planet Earth. 26 points per game would be a top scorer on planet Earth. Uh, this season, it's about 32. <laughs> average, not the leader, the average top 10 scorer is averaging 32 points, just under 32 points per 75. Cody, that's a 30% difference. So it's got me thinking... Um, that scoring is easier for the entire league, but because it's easier for everyone, the best players who are already good at scoring, it's even more easy for them. And this distribution of scoring increase, the rich get richer. It doesn't evenly go to everyone. Like all the role players aren't increasing at 12%. All the Dennis Rodmans and non-scorers aren't increasing at 12%. The, the rich are getting richer in the sense that they're getting more of the benefit from this scoring spike. That's, I really want to emphasize that because I, I find it interesting. We both went into our separate laboratories and we were, we were playing around with all of our tools in the toolbox and we came together and we we're like, wow, look at these things. This is, this is sort of what we're coming to the conclusion of separately here. And I think, I, I don't know, that blows what my conception was because I, I kind of figured, like when I was looking at the top 100 scores, right, I was kind of expecting a much bigger jump for everyone in the league because, you know, I do think that the NBA across the board is getting better. And my assumption was like, all right, since everyone in the league is so good since guys like Grayson Allen are coming off the bench running these these uh intense dribble handoff possessions throwing cross-court kick passes I'm like every single player's points per 75 are jumping up that much but no when you see the scoring and then the efficiency jump up even more for top 10 scores that's what caught my eye because it's not just the scoring Ben I think the other thing that jumps out so much when you look at these numbers is the efficiency spike I think that might even be, you know, I didn't map that out, but that might even be a bigger percentage change of how much more efficient the scores, especially the top 10 scores in the league, are compared to what they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So I, I really want to emphasize that, that the top 10 scores seem to be benefiting even more than all other scores in the NBA. Well, of course, we often talk about efficiency 
relative to the league. So we know the league is getting more efficient. That's part of what's happening as that offensive rating goes up. I mean, literally, that is what's happening as the offensive rating goes up. That's efficiency. So the players overall raw efficiency we know has gone league-wide 53 percent true shooting 54 percent true shooting 56 now we're at 57 something but your point is that in the last few years even when you look at relative true shooting the scoring leaders are posting you know they're always about four or five points better than the league average and there was a period where that wasn't the case I don't know how much to make that about the scoring leaders from what I've looked at, because if you go back to the 90s, there were a lot of years where they were also four or five points ahead. To me, that's just about everyone getting smarter, and you don't have a bunch of volume scorers anymore that are taking a ton of shots, trying to score 30 points a game, but also at like 53% true shooting. We've kind of moved those guys out of the league, and you end up with more of the Steph Curry 2016 model, the Jokic model that we've talked about, um, even the mega volume guys of the last few seasons that we'll get into, Dame Lillard's on a heater. He's like 7% ahead of league average. Jo- Joel Embiid, 5 or 6% ahead of league average. James Harden's incredible 2019 season, I think, was 6% of ahead of league average. So we, as the efficiency goes up, it also seems the league, in conjunction with sort of the analytics movement and trying to get better shots and higher shot quality has moved away from the old model of like, well, I got a leading scorer and he's going to score 30 a game, but it, it's a little bumpy because his true shooting percentage is 50%. Um, I, I think that's what you're getting at there. Yeah. And I think it leads me to two, two like main questions that going through all these numbers leaves me with. Number one, how do you actually compare players across generations? I think that's the really big question from those. How do you take a player from 2023, take a player from 1994, and be like, so-and-so is definitively a better score? Like, how can you actually take them and, and compare the two? But number two, how do you even compare to players within a single season, right? How do you take an efficiency monster like Jokic right now, who's what scoring like 26 points for 75 and like plus 12 relative true shooting percentage, which is just ridiculous. But then you have someone like Embiid, who's at what, like plus, like 35 points per 75 on plus six efficiency? How do you take those two inputs and be like, all right, when we take these together, this player is actually the better scorer. So those are those are kind of the two exploratory spaces that I want to, to be thinking about more with these numbers. Oh, I want to start with the Jokic question. But before we do that, just to put a cap on how things have changed in terms of volume and efficiency... Um, Cody, you said there were, or you pulled, I can't remember if you said it, 46 seasons in league history or, or with what basketball reference has going back to the seventies where a player averaged 30 points per 75 and 17 of those seasons at almost 40% have come in the last four years, 17, 2020, 2021, 2022 and this year an all-time record 2023 so if you were to graph this you would see like one year that has it and then a couple years that don't and then one year that has it maybe a couple years with two no season in league history saw two 30 point per 75 seasons that that scoring rate was never achieved by more than two players until 2020 and in the last few years we've had three players four players four players and this season, it's it's six players, six players who have done it. So um, this is sort of the driver of, of what we're 
batting around and the conversation today of trying to figure out what what it actually means to contextualize these scoring numbers, either from a statistical standpoint, which we'll talk about a little later in the show, perhaps, or just from an analytical, like when I watch the game, what does it mean in an individual game when a guy goes for 45? Like in that incredible Kings game last, didn't Giannis finish with like 46 points in the game? Yeah. And and it, it on one hand, it did feel like an incredible performance by Giannis. I think I uh, texted the group and said Giannis feels like a cheat code against the small ball structure of the game today because every time he was on anybody other than Domas Sabonis, and Sabonis himself isn't a great defender, but you know the Kings, like to like many teams, will play a forward like Harrison Barnes at the four position. He's 6'7", six, 6'8", six, and against Giannis, who we said last time is really a center. He's, <laughs> he's kind of cheating because of his versatility. Um, that just felt like tissue paper was stuck to his shoulder or something. He was It was dunk after dunk after dunk, spin move after spin move. He's just so athletically gifted. And then you look up at the end of the game and he has 46 points. And so on one hand, it did feel dominant, but it also felt like water just kind of like flowing through the forest right in front of you. And you're like, oh, okay, that was almost a 50-point game. I don't even think that's that impressive anymore. I, I, I don't know. The water's beautiful. You have the babbling brook... The tree of Lopez sitting out there doing what he has to do. The uh, the redwood the redwood of Brook. The redwood of Brook. That that man's a beautiful score. His defense is great, but he his post game his shooting. We're not pivoting to Brook. Brook Lopez isn't coming up. He doesn't come up in any of these. But he got I think, a whole episode last time. Come on, he's not he's not coming up today. That's not enough. We need more Brook Lopez content. But I love Giannis because we have right here in front of us in all of our numbers best points per seventy five seasons of all time. You say Giannis. And what he is right above right now, his fourth ranking season ever, is right above Kobe Bryant's 2006 scoring explosion. You heard me correctly, Ben. Giannis is scoring more points per 75 possessions than Kobe Bryant That's in this 2006. Season. Yeah, That's this, this season. season, right? This, this season. And this season even like a good scoring season for him. That's yeah. what's crazy. This is his lowest efficiency in a long time. Last year, just by raw numbers... He was about 33 points per 75 on true shooting percentage, 7% better than the league. This year, he's 34, which is what Cody's talking about, just ahead of or just equal to that legendary Kobe Bryant season in 2006. And much like Kobe, his true shooting percentage has gone down to plus 2% relative to the league. And you're like looking at that, you're like, is this even one of Giannis's best scoring seasons? from the last few years, it's it's all very confusing, and that's what we're that's what we're trying to make sense of today. And I think I really like the Kobe Giannis comparison here because you look at that and yeah, I try and step away from this bias, but when I see that, I'm like, that doesn't look right. That doesn't look right. But that's not a good reason to make any kind of conclusion, right? You can't end the conversation of being like, well, that's not right because it doesn't look right. It's a good starting point. It's a good starting point to kind of dive into the numbers and be like, all right, what's going on here? But I think that's a good imp- impetus to be like yeah, I don't know. There's something more going on here because Giannis is a spectacular scorer. Don't get me wrong. I love the man. But when when all of a sudden he's above these heralded scoring seasons that always stood out as being like, oh, you're not going to pass Kobe in 2006. I don't know. I, I'm interested. What what? I, I don't even know what to ask next, Ben. How do we compare Giannis this season with Kobe from 2006? Yeah, I mean, we have done two mega 
podcasts in the past on best scores of all time. I've focused on the regular season, I think, in one and the playoffs in another. We've talked about more complex statistical ways to look at that using the uh, quote unquote scoring value model that I built back in time for one of those podcasts. It's there's no straightforward way to do this. I think one thing I've discussed before in the past is how robust is your scoring? What's the context of it? Do you always have a hook shot on the left block? Um, and that's not a dig at Kareem, right? Because in Kareem's case, his hook shot was unstoppable. But I think I, I do like to think about the diversity of your scoring, the sort of inelasticity of your scoring. How resilient is it against different defenses? Uh, is it one-dimensional? Is it multi-dimensional? Um, and then there's something we've talked about a lot recently on this show, and I think you and I have talked about it a good amount in the last few years, this idea of your stats changing depending on who's on the court with you. So if we're going to use stats as a guiding light in this conversation, and you can't, you can't escape it. You can't escape the fact that I think you need film to contextualize, even with scoring, even if we leave out the playmaking component, which is impossible to do, let's face it, you can't truly separate the thread of playmaking with how you're defended and how you score. But to understand the first set of criteria I just laid out, you need to watch the player to understand you know, his strengths and weaknesses and how robust he is and how resilient he is, yada, yada, yada. But then your brain can't keep track of what's going on. No matter how, how strong you think your brain is at keeping track of it. We've got decades of basketball that show your brain doesn't really know. We, we didn't really know when guys were inefficient back in the day. And even then, we kept track of all the shots. Let me say that again because I think it's a big point. We kept track of all the shots and people still didn't really internalize who was the most efficient. They were like, ah, field goal percentage, 42%. That seems okay. But they left out the three-point shots and they left out the free throws. And so it's very hard to just intuit without keeping track of what's happening, who is scoring the most and the most effectively every time down in a basketball possession. So Cody, I think the the crazy part here is that you've got this sort of stylistic and um, non-statistical components of trying to figure this out. How do you contextualize the player's scoring? And then you have the statistical side and it's like, both of those are moving targets right now. Um, so we were looking at the best sort of a list of the best regular season scoring seasons ever trying to think like, well, every night they put these graphics up and we got three of the top six scoring rates of all time happening right now in the regular season. Let's leave the playoffs aside. But does it feel like we're watching three of the best six scores ever? Um it doesn't to me. And so how do you, why, why do I feel that way? Is that irrational? Are we actually watching three of the best six scores ever And these old seasons aren't actually that impressive? It's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a puzzle to be solved. It's a, it's an enigma wrapped inside a riddle that is also in a mystery. <laughs> I, I think, you know, nothing against Luca or Giannis here. 
But there's something about Embiid. So I think Embiid, and I'm I'm not trying to be a, a parody of anything. I've seen a video going around that's like, do you remember the old like side by side videos that would come out that would compare Kobe Bryant's moves to Michael Jordan's moves, and it would be like, look at how much he's copied him. That same sort of video is Bob bumping around with with Joel Embiid and Kobe Bryant. So like, look at him copying these moves, right? It it's very it's very surreal. You see him doing like the same kind of shimmy and fade away and pull up mid range jumper and things like that. So I think. I think it's very hard to pull away from the bias of watching a guy that can smoothly pull up, that can kind of shimmy and hit that fadeaway and hit it semi-consistently. It's hard to look at that and not be like, this guy's incredible. And especially like if we're talking about other centers, you look at Joel Embiid and you're like, there's no way he's better than Shaq. We know it's Shaq. But then you watch him and you're like, but also Shaq couldn't do a lot of these different things, you know? So I don't know. I feel like stylistically, if you were to say one of these guys, it feels like most people would be like, actually Embiid might be one of the greatest scorers ever just because of all these things. Giannis, he doesn't quite have the bag. Luca, he's kind of a little bit more of a ball hog. Again, I'm talking from like what the general consensus would be. But I think a lot of people might put Embiid up there as one of the greatest scorers ever. Do you disagree with that? Well, I, I where I agree is it feels like he's the one to pick out and say he's the guy who who's up there with these other all-time great scorers. We will we will get to the statistical side in a second. I, I do want to come back to that because I think that's going to help inform the conversation in a meaningful way. But even before we do Embiid, we've talked about Embiid scoring with and without Harden recently. If you just look at Embiid, the just the raw numbers, okay, two thousand twenty-one. Almost 33 points per 75, plus 6%. Almost 33 points per 75, plus 6%. Uh, Last year, 2022, 34 points per 75, plus 5%. This year, 35 points per 75, plus 6%. Um... Which of those seasons is the best? That's 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 my first question. Because keep in mind, league-wide offensive rating is jumping leaps and bounds in each of these seasons. Man, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I, I'm, I'm trying to look away from the numbers. It's like the Matrix where I'm like seeing all the numbers and I'm looking past it to actually see the woman in the red dress instead of just like the green numbers scrolling across the screen, you know? And I think based on just like what I know about the season – Embiid this year seems like the best version of his scoring. It seems like he has the most counters that he's ever had. It seems like, but also, again, maybe this is playing next to a genius like James Harden who's setting it up. So, again, I don't know how you separate all of these things when you're talking about it, but off the top of my head, I feel like the answer would be this season. I I kind of agree, but also isn't that the trap? Isn't that the trap where we just... You might be able to pull him up. I don't remember where we had him. Um, But we did an episode recently talking about Harden stats with Embiid and Harden stats without Embiid. And and basically, the idea there was he gets better, right? He gets better when Harden's on the court. So Mm -hmm. is it just the presence of Harden that is inflating those numbers and those opportunities? And then your brain indexes on those great moves it remembers those great moves more and the officiating is continuing to make scoring easier and spacing and skill and all the other tactics we've talked about continue to make scoring easier though who knows how much that applies to philadelphia because in their case you can give the ball to Embiid in a clear out on the on one side they have that 1980s offense they also love to get Embiid the ball in the middle of the floor 
around the nail, the free throw line, the pinch post, that Dirk Nowitzki spot. He's incredible from there because it's very hard to double when you're just like sitting in the middle of the court and facing a defense and you're like, well, where where are you going to come from? Are you going to come from right there? My guy's going to be wide open. It's an easy pass because I'm in the middle of the court. I'm not on one side. Um, he's been great in all those areas. And then you add in the pick and pop, pick and roll with James Harden. So I don't know. On one hand, it feels like I'm with you. Like 2023 is the best, but that's how, that's how tricky and fuzzy this conversation is, at least to me right now, when you're trying to parse the, the splitting of hairs of players who are elite, high level, maybe in some capacity, all time level scores. So what I find particularly difficult about Embiid's case, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I do remember like there he's both more efficient and scores more when Harden is on the court. Very rare. Like, you don't see that happening very often when you have an offensive superstar sharing the court with another offensive superstar. And I feel like this is one of those things where, depending on how you're feeling or who you want to argue for, that could be used for or against Embiid, right? Because on one hand, you could be like, well, I want to see a score that, like, when he's on his own, he really ramps it up, right? He's unstoppable. He can buoy it. But on the other hand, you're like, well, actually, I love seeing a score that can fit next to somebody else that can pass the ball and he's actually elevated like it. It's like the old Amari Stoudemire and Steve Nash kind of thing, right? Are you, on one hand, like, yeah, Amari Stoudemire is a lot better with Steve Nash. But on the other hand, you have the skill set that allows you to be, have this high synergy with somebody else that's a great creator. And so I think that in itself is a philosophical divide that I don't even necessarily know how to ha- handle because that might be contextual. Well, well, I feel like with Amari, though, he's more dependent to get mm-hmm. that great scoring. Like when you remove Nash and you send him to New York uh, or when Nash left the court in Phoenix, there's very similar numbers. You can you can see sort of the ceiling or the weaknesses or the fragility of his scoring, if you will. OK, I want Amari to be a big 28 point score sorry god that was big back then today i guess it would be like i want amari to be like a 33 point score what does it even mean i don't i don't look at a lot of point per game stats so I, it throws me when people are like yeah let's throw on the game and this random guy is averaging 22 a night and i'm like wait a second relative to what everyone else is doing that's like the hundredth best player that's not, that's not a big thing anymore anyway with amari i think you could see okay um I can't generate great high efficiency looks myself. I can face at the elbow. I got a pull-up game. I can drive. I can use my quickness advantage. I can get some putbacks and offensive rebounds. That, by the way, that's always a tricky one because there's no aesthetic pop for people whatsoever on grabbing offensive rebounds and scoring. And yet that is a part of scoring to some degree, right? I feel like some people would almost disqualify it and be like, "We, if you're on the weak side and you're Moses Malone, the skill there is rebounding, not the scoring. You rebound and you put the layup in. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but it it's, it's very complicated. Okay, so th- this is actually really interesting because if you're actually trying to, s- to strip away scoring from everything else, right? NBA players have their spots they want to get to, right? Embiid wants to get to the middle of the court. He scores there. He wants to drive in and be physical and get there. Having Harden actually takes away the barriers of him himself having to generate getting to those spots. So you could see somebody making the argument that's like, actually, 
Hart being on this court with Harden shows how good of a scorer Embiid is because when you take away these other reasons that prevent him from getting to a spot, whether it be ball handling or or something else, he's truly unstoppable. He's that much better. So it's actually his pure scoring that is being unlocked by Harden and other great scorers wouldn't be able to showcase that sort of thing next to him. Yeah, I got the numbers, by the way. It was 34 plus four without Harden, very similar to the 2021 and 2022 numbers we saw. And then maybe that spike this year is because he's playing with the great James Harden, who we talked about his playmaking and his offensive effect and how he's having quietly such a good year in this role. Um, 36 plus eight, 36 (laughs) points per 75 on true shooting percentage, 8% ahead of the league. But, But that's what I mean, Cody, where it's like, if you're really getting down to it and trying to rank the best scoring seasons, for me at least, I think you want to understand what does it mean when he plays as a lone star? What does it mean when he plays with one other star? What does it mean when he plays with two other guys? How does he fit or scale up? Or are you like, you know, shift roles? Um, what does it mean when his offense, like, isn't how good your offense is a part of this as well? So, there's what's happening with the league. There's what's happening with your team, your teammate quality. There's what's happening with the quality of your offense. Before we, because I, I want to ask the same question about Jokic. Before we go there, let's jump back to the statistical side. I just asked a bunch of questions. What what does it mean if your offense is better? What does it mean relative to the league? This is where Scoreval comes in. This this was the impetus behind building a model that said, look. This is not going to be the definitive one-number scoring tool on Earth. We can't just look at this and say this is a ranking of scores because of everything else we've talked about in this episode. But that's literally what that model did. It said, what's going on with your teammates? What's going on relative to the league? And what do we sort of quote-unquote think the value from your scoring is based on those factors and based on your own scoring numbers? and balancing the the model itself trying to balance volume and efficiency. That old idea of balancing volume and efficiency. And if you do that, none of the current seasons in 2023 in that scoring value model are like top five or top 10 of all time. All the seasons for the most part we're talking about are very good. Although interesting, Giannis, I think he's having the worst scoring value season he's had in a number of years just because of that efficiency. There's a lot of debate from longtime listeners of this show of like, well, does that model value efficiency too much? Um, I don't know, but it's always fascinated me that the model said, hey, you know what looks like it's more helpful in basketball? A slightly lower scoring season where your actual shots are converted at an insanely high percentage versus a higher scoring season where your shots are converted just a little bit above league average. And I think that's a perfect segue back to a totally different type of score in uh, Nikola Jokic. I, first of all, I hate the fact that this conversation is revolving around these two because I, I genuinely don't want this to be like we're part of the MVP discourse right now. And that was just... extremely unintentional, very ironic. <laughs> we, have th- we have like 80 other scores on the board and more, more <laughs> cases to talk about. But I think for this individual yeah. season, these are the two most interesting to discuss in terms of the philosophical conundrums of this conversation because Embiid is the mega volume 
also with good efficiency, also with another player who impacts his stats, also to both of us kind of looks like the guy who it feels like when you landscape the league, maybe outside of your Kevin Durant or whatever, you go like, man, is Embiid one of the absolute best scorers ever? I've talked about this before. And then Jokic is this sneaky scorer with this crazy efficiency that's taking place, amazing shooting, amazing mid-range, amazing drives, just everything. And it's like, how... How do we balance those? Because we've seen Jokic without other players go, yeah, you need 35 points on a 80% field goal percentage. Yeah, I'm your man. I, yeah, the, I don't know. The, the aesthetic argument is such a, a key to this. And I hate that it's a key to it, but it is because you watch Jokic, right? He, ta- he, he starts driving from the perimeter, right? But it's not like a line drive drive. Like he drives and then kind of turns his body and then kind of turns his body again. There's a double and then he looks off the double and they run away and he just keeps like shimmying towards the basket. And then all of a sudden it's just like a layup. And like, wait, how did he, how did he get to the basket? Whereas like Embiid would have like the between the legs, steps up, guy tries to contest it, pulls up, buries it, like the smoothest little jumper. And the other thing that Jokic has that Embiid doesn't have, you said you said that people are talking about Moses Malone and maybe being like, all right, that's not super like obviously it's efficient, but that's not super aesthetic. That's not great. You know what's even less efficient? Uh, not efficient. You know what's less aesthetic than coming down with a rebound and putting it back, getting your tap. own. Just tapping it. Oh, the tap. You miss your yeah. shot, and you just go up and tap it. Because Jokic is so good at that. And I don't even know how that fits into it, because the amount of shots that he rebounds of his self. That was a terrible sentence. This is a struggling speaking day. Sorry, I'm, I'm, it's me. I'm rubbing off on you. It's I apologize. A, this, yeah. is, this, is a, this is a tough one, but the number of times that Jokic just kind of lightly taps, like Happy Gilmore, tap, tap, taps it back in his own shots, it's unbelievable. And I think people would be like, well, the greatest scorer should score in the first shot. I don't know, man. It it gets co- it gets complicated again. I can't. Talk. <laughs> this is this this is amazing. Get complicated. This is what this is what this discussion <laughs> has done to us. It's just rendered us uh, incapable of speaking the English language. Maybe we should try another language. Um, no, I, you're right. You're right. Tipping is even is even sort of less of a brownie point here than scoring and and um, scoring in isolation or whatever. And in Jokic's case, I've talked about this before, he's one of the leaders in the league in following his own shot, which messes up his raw scoring stats. So as efficient as he is in his raw scoring stats, 12 and a half points ahead of the league in true shooting, shooting 67% or whatever it is on two-point field goal attempts, which is just bonkers. Um, you, you have this thing where if you actually account for all of the times he follows his own shot immediately and tips it back in, he gets even more efficient relative to the league. He's like 14% ahead of the league. So how do you handle that? And would you say this season's Jokic is a better scoring season than last season's Jokic? Or is it this? Is it a very similar thing to you? The only difference is the stats are driven by teammates. So last year he had higher volume and lower efficiency. This year he has lower volume and higher efficiency. And that's the crux of it. I don't know what like the I don't even know if there's like a sliding scale of like each po- each percentage of true shooting percentage is equal like this many points. I don't even know if you can like as cleanly make that happen, but I think uh, man, what I was going to say again, I'm like, well, we also have Jokic being on some of the great like when he's on the court, their offenses are ridiculous, but again, that has a lot to do with his passing ability. That kind of greases the grooves that way. So I I, I don't know. It, it feels <laughs> like this year, like, like Embiid, it feels like when I watch him that he's a better scorer this season. Well, the 
one thing I'll say about all this is it makes me think about scoring as a curve, not as a point. Makes me think about scoring as a curve, not as a point. We've talked about skill curves before, and we've talked about this very old Dean Oliver idea of, you know, if, you're, if your volume goes up, then your efficiency probably goes down because you're taking harder shots. I think the entire conversation we're having today, who's your teammates, who, who's on the floor, what, what's your role, it just reinforces that, like, there is no such thing as a 30-point score. If you're statistically um, fluent, there is no such thing as a 30 plus five score because it's always dependent on who's out there. So the exact same score could be 28 plus 12, 26 plus 10, 20 or sorry, 30, 34 plus two or whatever. And, and different scores are going to have different shapes to their curve, right? So an interesting one is Kobe. You mentioned him before. Kobe, we've talked a lot on this podcast and a lot of the work I've done on him over the years focuses on his playoff stuff. But if you look at the regular season, he never really has a a big efficiency regular season. I think that's largely, as I've said a million times, because of his shot selection and because athletically, unlike Shaq, unlike even someone like Michael Jordan, he wasn't just able to generate a ton of super high efficiency shots. Seems like he actually gets a boost in some philosophical perspective from a lot of fans out there because his shots were so hard. But in this conversation, to me, that's a clearer one where it's like, nah, I typically want the guy who can get me the easiest shots. So even though Giannis has quote unquote, no game, right? Giannis has no bag. Um, Trying to stay in front of Giannis or trying to jump with Giannis or trying to deal with Giannis as a role man or whatever it is, uh, it's essentially impossible, just like it was with Shaq a generation before. So th- those guys are the ones that, even though they might have fewer moves, and even though they can't, in Giannis's case, you know, I, every time he takes a 20-footer, I, I cringe. I, uh, I, I fall out of the chair. Um, you almost don't want them shooting. But the name of the game is to still try to score. And I think that's why if we went back, back in the day, way back, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would probably not be controversial as a choice for one of, if not the best scorers in the game at the time, because it's like very, very big, very, very tall, very, very amazing skyhook. Good luck. Yeah. Kareem is just a going back and watching him during the summer. That blew my mind. There, there, were, there were times, Ben, where I thought maybe we were even a little too low on him. That, that's another podcast for another day. But talking about Giannis, I, I agree with you. He gets himself some efficient shots. But even him, with these spectacular numbers that he has, he still feels like, and I, I hate the feels feeling, but that's kind of where some of this analysis like starts and we go into diving it. He feels like a rung down, even from like not even the top two guys. Like if we Let's pretend that Jokic and Embiid are the two best scorers in the league. It still feels like I could slot in a Durant. I could slot in a, a Lillard. Is Luca a better scorer than you? I, I don't know, but it feels like those four other guys, maybe maybe the three, let's say Durant, Embiid, and Jokic are kind of in their own little bubble. Does that does that seem fair when we're talking about the best scorers? In Man, the right I don't now? even I don't even know. I don't even know. I feel like I've done so much work on this and yet it gets it feels like it it almost gets hazier when you try to, when you try to zoom in and you force this level of granularity. I feel like a lot of people what they want is a high efficiency bucket on demand. 
And I think in the old days, that was like isolation. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. That was a serious uphill battle to try to convince people that Reggie Miller's points coming off of screens counted the same as if you just gave him the ball and had him dribble for 15 seconds and then take a fadeaway from 18 feet. If you're young and you think that's a joke, that's not a joke. That was literally a multi-year uphill battle to sell that idea that it was okay to use screens. Now everyone uses screens on the ball, off the ball, whatever. And so really this is where you can't escape the gravity of playmaking um maybe pun intended because you want to on demand generate the best shot for the team and everyone's figured this out in the sport including most of the best players so when we say like oh i want a guy who can get a bucket i can get he can get a bucket on demand well really you want him to get a bucket for the team so maybe he needs to pass but if we're just focusing on scoring um to me, he could come off screens, right? He could be the one using a screen. He could go to the post. He can be in isolation. And if we want a guy who can generate... I, I, let me throw something out there on the fly. What if we thought about this, instead of just pure scoring, as scoring pressure? Hmm. You generate scoring pressure. And then some players will shoot into that pressure. Maybe Embiid shoots over a double team. Some players will pass out of that pressure, but it'll just be a, a release valve. Giannis gets doubled and he misses the open guy and his head is looking the wrong way, but he kicks it out to a three-point shooter. And maybe you keep a micro advantage or maybe they reset the play. And then the Magic Johnson, Jokic, that version is like you're in the post and all of a sudden you go to score. And when you make your move, you draw defensive attention. And then those players got you with passing. Should we be thinking about it from a scoring pressure perspective? Because the potential to score is the thing that the player can release whenever they want. And oh, by the way, when we're getting really excited and we're at the bar and we're watching a game together and we're like, that guy can go get me a bucket. What we really care about is his ability to on-demand strain defenses. Because I think for me, that's the reason why I can't just punt Jokic out of this conversation despite lower volume. Because when you look at like, garbage time stats and you filter them out, when you look at clutch stats, when you look at Denver's performance down the stretch, when you see some of these games where his team's struggling, he's just like, I'm going to score every time. It, it makes, it actually gets back to that old argument of like, well, the data betrays what's actually happening because when he wants to really press the scoring button against most opponents, he can do that. And again, we're stuck on him as an example, but I think this applies to a lot of the other great players that we talk about when we stack up all-time scores from uh, Michael Jordan himself to James Harden, especially to different Kobe seasons, um, even to lesser guys like Magic Johnson uh, and, and, and so on and so forth, Oscar Robertson, other, other historical players. I really love this scoring pressure thing. I think that is kind of the key of everything we're talking about. Because the way that you defend a player, right, you're not going to double team a player because you're afraid of their passing, right? When you double team a player, you're actually afraid of their passing. So I think that's the other part that shows how inextricable these two concepts are. Because say Joel Embiid, once we get to the playoffs, he's going to see a lot more double teams because that's probably the best way to take advantage of his weaknesses, right? Embiid's a good passer. But when he's really stressed out by a lot of defenses flying at him, he doesn't always make the best decisions and can throw it away a little bit more. So you want to put him in those positions. Whereas Jokic, 
it's tougher to just straight up double team him because he's going to just find the open player. You can't have Jokic playing against you, you know, four on three or whatever it might be. So that just changes the way that the defense is gonna is going to play against you. And then I think the on demand aspect of it. I think maybe that's actually the key to Giannis in this conversation as well, because a huge part of Giannis's game, a huge driver of his efficiency in scoring as well, is the transition stuff, which puts a ton of pressure on the other team. And he's one of the greatest transition scorers of all time, but transition is not on demand. Okay, and that's going to be something that needs to be created before you get there. So I think these other guys that when you get to the half court, when you get to a set defense, that's when you get more of the on demand sort of stuff. Well, and I, that's such a great point, because I think when people intuit this stuff or when they throw it out casually on Twitter or somewhere else online or at a talk show, they're thinking about like the half court bucket. They're removing the 10 to 25 percent of the game that takes place in transition, depending on your era. There's always some amount of transition and LeBron, of course, is an example here. We haven't mentioned LeBron's name because LeBron's regular season scoring numbers actually aren't as impressive as his historically strong playoff scoring numbers. His volume never got super high. Again, maybe that's because he's such a great passer. But the transition thing with LeBron is always there as well, where he was criticized for so long as a player who, in an era where everyone else was sitting at the elbow and clearing out, Throw it to Paul Pierce, throw it to Dirk Nowitzki, throw it to Kobe Bryant, throw it to Carmelo Anthony. I mean, can we keep going? This is just like the entire sport felt like it had this going. LeBron didn't have that same thing. It was pressure on the rim, go under his screens and see if he can shoot. And therefore, it felt like, well, his his scoring game isn't as robust. It isn't as versatile in these situations. Oh, well, why does he have such great scoring numbers? Well, Shooting 75% in transition, uh, you know, getting, getting whatever it is, like six extra points a game in transition. And to me, that's real. That's still part of scoring. But I think just like with the offensive rebounding, people, people chop that off. And so it makes them more skeptical when you show when stats show up and you're like, actually, when we look at the scoring value model, LeBron's his his uh, volume isn't quite there, but he's popping relative to the league on the team he's in. Maybe a lot of that is the transition buckets he's picking up. And I feel like people have a negative reaction to that. They're like, yeah, the transition, it doesn't count. So are you are you disagreeing with what I say? Do you think that my argument that because Giannis gets a lot of his his efficiency from transition that I'm kind of maybe taking him down a notch compared to these other guys in the half court? I think a lot of people do that intuitively. I'm not sure how much I want to do that. I, st- I okay. feel like th- I feel like the transition should count because those points count in basketball. Those possessions are exactly the same as all other possessions. Yeah. You made me think of another thing, though, related to this, about this on-demand idea. Let's talk about Steph Curry and James Harden. We, we've gone this far without mentioning Steph Curry. I have said many times, I think the 2016... Steph Curry season may be the best offensive regular season of all time. But part of that is that it may be the best scoring season of all time. It's certainly the most underrated scoring season I can think of in the history of the sport because they were blowing people out. So he didn't play 40 minutes a night and he didn't end up averaging 32 or 33 points per game. But he did average about 32 points per 75 on true shooting percentage that was 13% ahead of the league, Cody. He was at 70% true shooting for like half the year. 
back when true shooting was like, I don't know, 50, 55% or something like that. So if you make historical graphs, which, which you can get on, um, thinking about, if you go to thinkingbasketball.net for our Patreon subscribers and you look at our daily leaderboard, you can like put the scoring leaders by volume and by efficiency up. And the guy in the upper right is the best, right? That's the most points in the right and the upper part is the efficiency. And if you did that historically for all the seasons in league history, you'd see a little dot out on its own. And that little dot is 2016 Steph Curry. And, and yet that seems to like never be discussed. I think one of the reasons why goes back to everything you just said. It goes back to the on-demand concept. Him playing off ball, it feels like, well, if I sell out to that and I double team that, right, then I can take some of that away. If I sell out to the three-point line, I can take some of that away. Now, of course, Curry is a great on-ball player, but as we discussed last year in their playoff run, he added some stuff over the years to maybe become a little bit better of an on-ball scorer, using his body, his step back, um, his handles tighter, things like that. So when you go back and you look at 2016 Steph Curry, you may be able to easily sell someone on the fact that it was an amazing scoring season, but when you stack it up to these other monsters, let's just stick with Embiid. Like Embiid has that sense of throw him the ball and get out of the way. How do you stop it? The thing about Curry that I think is really difficult, and I want to ask you your opinion on this, is a huge chunk of where he derived his offensive value and still derives his offensive value, but especially like during that time, was the the off-ball gravity, the amount that teams bent to try and defend him, the amount of clips that we've seen of multiple players just like running haphazardly at him while like, I don't know, Clay Thompson cuts to the basket, Harrison Barnes cuts to the basket, and you get to lay up or dunk. And you just, you don't see that for guys like Embiid. No, nothing against Embiid. Just Steph Curry is the best that's ever been at doing that. Do you factor in the fear of somebody scoring into how good of a scorer you think they are? See, th- th- this is, to me, part of the ultimate question that we've kind of bounced around today. Because I feel like most other people don't. And I'm wondering if you go back to that scoring pressure idea, because I would think about that as playmaking traditionally, but you're making a very interesting point with Curry that like, even though it is quote unquote playmaking value, that is in a way reflective of how dangerous and how hard that off ball scoring is to stop. And so we have to sell out to him in a traditional way to slow it down because it just puts so much pressure on our defense. I, I don't know where I land right now. We're kind of talking these things through in, in real time. Um, I will say, I think there is something to the idea of Curry when he was younger, generating points off the dribble in isolation on his own, hurting his sort of impression of, of himself as a great scorer with most, of course, you know, Kevin Love, famously with the stop <laughs> at the, at the end of game seven in 2016. But it's like, if those were the parameters, if we were playing uh, a game of one-on-one where you had three dribbles or he threw it to someone at the elbow or something like that, Steph Curry wouldn't be my first pick. If Shaquille O'Neal had to start outside the three-point line and dance his way in and make fadeaways and things like that, he wouldn't be my first pick. But those guys both create a pressure, one at the basket, one at the three-point line, that maybe no one else in NBA history 
can match just with their specialty, just with that specialization. And to me, that puts them in this conversation. And oh, by the way, because we're almost out of time, um, we've made it this far. I don't even think we've mentioned Michael Jordan. <laughs> I, I, I feel like we've been trying to stay more, more. Uh, I guess Kobe Bryant's about as far back and went, of course, a Kareem shout out. But I think this is, I, I don't know if this is a hot take, Ben, but this is what always frustrates, frustrates me with conversations about like one-on-one or a game like 21 or lightning or things like that. It's like, oh, then who would you want in this situation? I don't care. That's a different sport. It's a different it's, sport. It's, yeah. It's literally not basketball. It is a component of basketball. But it is not basketball. Basketball has so much more to it. And just because, I don't know, player so-and-so loses to player so-and-so in a game of one-on-one, it's a different game completely. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, And I'm just saying we didn't mention Michael because we're batting around these philosophical ideas and we're trying to contextualize, like, what does it mean to have six of the highest scoring seasons in one year? Are we looking at six of the greatest scorers ever? I mean, from one perspective, anytime you're way up at the top of the league, you're an all-time great scorer, probably. From another perspective, uh, no, I don't think we're looking at six of the greatest scorers ever. I mean, some of the scoring seasons that popped in our statistical sort of queries earlier that have been high in my scoring value model are things like Tracy McGrady, 2003. Now, things happened later in his career. Uh, Was that season lucky because of his three-point shooting? You know, there was a small playoff sample. They fell apart at the end against Detroit in a series. They were underdogs and he was heroic in the first couple games. What does that all mean? Throw that out. We don't care. Just like the actual regular season that the dude had 32 points per 75 plus 5% true shooting percentage in that league statistically looks amazing. I want to finish on the other statistical side. Come back to that here at the end. We looked at the top 10 scores. We talked about the average volume for the top 10 scores year by year. If you take that and you, and you try to fit a line to it, you basically just say, what do we expect based on league wide offensive efficiency? What do we expect the average top 10 scores to look like? You can fit a line pretty well. Okay. And if you do this for the last 25 years or so, and then you compare the top scores to that actual line, meaning this is no longer perfectly linear adjusting as the league increases in offensive rating. Instead, you're just, this line changes a little bit as it gets higher or lower or whatever. tries to take into account the fact that when scoring gets easier, it seems to get much easier for the better players disproportionately. When we fit that line, and then we take all these players and we say, what does it mean to score like Embiid this year? 35 points per 75. What does that mean relative to the expected top 10 scorer in a league like that? Embiid's about four points ahead of where we expect the average top 10 score. That's 24th on the board of scorers we put up. We didn't even comprehensively search every season in the league. We, we got almost all of them, so it may be 24th all time, but it is at best... 24th all-time. That Tracy McGrady season that I mentioned, that's about six points ahead of what the expected top 10 score was in 2003. The best season, Cody, would you like to know the the best volume scoring season, which also happens to have nice efficiency, uh, using using this concept uh, at least in the three-point era, we didn't we didn't run this back to the to the old days when Basketball Reference runs out of data. Would you like to know the best? Please tell me, Ben. Do you have a guess? 
volume. I, it's James Harden. I'm pretty sure that that one of those Rockets years is just off the charts. 2019, James Harden. Uh, he has eight points ahead of the expected top 10 score based on league-wide offensive rating. Kobe Bryant, 2006, that you mentioned, is right behind that. 1987, Michael Jordan is right behind that. So I think no matter what you do, the three mega scoring seasons historically always pop like that, at least in, in all the stat stuff I've done. But this is the first time you get a season like Joel Embiid, which by the raw numbers is right there. And it's way behind. It's behind a bunch. It's behind that Curry season we mentioned. It's behind the Tracy McGrady season. It's behind a bunch of Kevin Durant's. It's behind your Russell Westbrook's. It's behind your Giannis's. You got to give a shout out to George Gervin in there, right? Like this, that's really the first perspective I've seen that says, hey, when things keep getting this easy for the league, we actually expect a top 10 scorer to look like this. And your best top 10 scorer right now is only a little bit better. Well, I don't know how to phrase that accurately. Like it's not quite as extreme of an advantage over the other top scorers that we've seen in past seasons. This is honestly, I feel like this is the first time I'm, I'm like looking through this. It's the first time I'm really seeing a statistical grappling with this sort of thing, trying to look at the inflation of scoring right now. Um, man, I, are the people going to be able to see? Is there a way that the people can see this? Because I really think this is a, an interesting statistic that, I don't know, other people would be interested in seeing. Yeah, we will uh, We will try to put this up on um, our site for Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. That, of course, is the best way to support this show. Cody, you have any final thoughts before we wrap this one? This, is, this has been a journey. Um, this has just been a journey. That's it. Genuinely, as somebody that's just like participating and working through a lot of this live, I feel like I've come away with a lot of a lot of wonderings like closer to being answered. I feel like this is a, a really big question that I've grappled with in a couple of years. I've tried playing around with some numbers in a couple of ways and and I've never able to get close in a way that really made me happy. And looking at some of these things and comparing some of these players, I'm starting to like see a clear picture of how to compare this season's and last season's ridiculous scoring to previous generations. Yeah, for me, if I had a big takeaway, it would be to think about scores and scoring numbers as curves that have different shapes versus a single point. It would be that having multiple statistical perspectives is a requirement not uh, like a bonus because there's just you need to think about what's the league like what are the defenses like what are the teammates like there's just no way around that and they're going to give you different perspectives so when you look at the score value model that we use it likes efficiency more but that's not necessarily wrong or or biased per se it's just saying hey on average this thing going on with efficiency relative to the league at this time relative to the teammates this player had, we think it's the most valuable. Think about that. Then you've got the last component, which is all the philosophical stuff we've talked about, where it's like, even if we try to draw a line about what it means to be the best scorer, maybe general scoring pressure in these different components of the game is a way that I can actually wrap my head around, like, here's a scout, here's some X's and O's, here are some tendencies, this guy's the best scorer to me. Versus... The old model, which I think is throw it, throw it to him at the elbow and get a bucket. And if you've got fancier moves, that's how we know who the best scorer is. 
Yeah, the, that philosophical question of like what actually counts as part of your offensive repertoire, and just to, just to sneak his name in one time before the end of the episode, like Matisse Thybul picking off a pass and bringing it down and scoring a ninety nine percent dunk. Do we give him credit for that offensively? Is that a defense thing? Are they both kind of combined? So I think that is also the question. What do you count as being part of somebody's offensive value? Or scoring uh, value, I guess, more specifically for this episode. Yeah, fa- fascinating stuff. I will uh, continue to chew on it more. Hope hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end, especially if you got through that uh, fake little outro move I put in there. Cody, I deliberately snuck in some additional content after that. Um, we will try to get these numbers up for subscribers as well. Otherwise, wherever you are, as always, hope you enjoyed this one and that you are having, of course, a great day.